Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, we brought Hudson Senior Fellow Dr. John Lee back on the podcast. Now, John has written a new white paper that's going into exactly how the American and the Chinese economies are going to decouple after the coronavirus crisis. And it feels like forever ago, but at the very start of this outbreak, it became very clear that the U.S. had unwittingly allowed itself to become dependent on China for medical supplies and other strategic and critical items. And this crisis finally began the conversation. So what's great about John's perspective on this, because he wrote a paper, is he's able to go into what exactly decoupling means and how that's different from disentangling and even from diversifying Western economies away from the Chinese model. So his perspective is particularly valuable for us because as you can tell from his accent, he's based in Australia. Listening to him, it's actually pretty clear that the debate over decoupling isn't really just about traded economics. It's about a broader referendum on how the geopolitical picture is going to look moving forward. So let's dive in. John Lee, welcome back to The Realignment. Well, great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Good to see you, John. So we're following up with you because you've actually written a new report for Hudson that's focused on decoupling the U.S. and Chinese economies because everyone started this conversation about how the U.S. has grown dependent on Chinese manufacturing for really important, critical things. So let's just dive in first with what is decoupling? What does it actually entail? Well, decoupling is like an economic divorce. So it's like ending the relationship with your trade or investment partner. And it's the most extreme um, kind of kind of separation you can have. That is the divorce. You end the relationship. Um, there are less extreme forms. There are You can diversify, so you can rely less on China or some other country. You can disentangle a lot of your supply chains. That is, you simplify your supply chains uh, such that it becomes easier to leave China if you have to do so. But decoupling is sort of the most extreme end state of an economic uh, termination. And so, John, how exactly did we get to the point? I mean, this is something we've covered on the podcast many times, but I think that given your um, your kind of vantage point from Australia, as a as somebody who's, whose country has also had to deal with this in your own form, how did it that the Western economies become so entangled with the Chinese in the first place? You have to go back to uh, geopolitics. And after the Soviet Union fell, we didn't really feel like we being the West didn't really feel like there were any real threats out there. So rather than focus on security, we all thought about the economy, which is understandable. But we thought in particular about what is the fastest and most efficient way to produce things for us to consume. So we didn't care whether... The supply chains were based in a friendly country like Australia or the United Kingdom or France. We only cared what the ch- what was the cheapest thing for us to do and the most efficient thing for us to do. Now, you also had lots of technological advances. Um, you know, it became very cheap to produce one thing in one part of the world and ship it to anywhere else around the world. So. America used to be a great manufacturing country, but what happened was because security was no longer part of the equation, firms didn't care where they located supply chains. China was rising with its huge labor force, cheap labor force, uh, 
and 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 it it was investing in manufacturing capacity. So if you're Walmart, uh, if you can produce a radio or a T-shirt um, for half the price in China, you do that. You don't really care what the geopolitical situation is. Mm-hmm. So something I've always wondered about is the debate about how inevitable was that sort of post-Cold War situation, right? Because if you go back to the 19th century, you had the UK, which actually used to be a manufacturing hub. That's where the Industrial Revolution actually started, and that Industrial Revolution actually eventually moved over to the United States. And it doesn't seem like there was anything the British could have done in the long term to prevent that from happening. So if we're looking at what happened after the 1990s, how much of a choice did policymakers actually have? They, they had a choice because uh, none of this would have happened if China wasn't allowed into the World Trade Organization. And China was allowed into the WTO uh, without having to reform its economy at all. And you would have to put a lot of blame on the American side and particularly the Clinton administration for for, uh, allowing that to happen. The reason why that happened was because uh, the administration and, to be fair, the American business community were very impatient to enter into the Chinese market. So rather than prepare the ground by ensuring that you had the right rules and standards and practices going on in China, companies... Uh, around the world rushed into China. China was, was just was was too happy to invest in manufacturing capabilities, um, and and that's we are where we are. Um, re- remember, uh, as I mentioned, security was just not part of the equation. We didn't really care that China was an authoritarian state. In fact, we didn't think that was relevant to manufacturing. Um, our goods for us, uh, we found out, unfortunately, that that does matter quite a fair bit. Right. And what's interesting, too, is that the assumption on certain persons' minds was that actually engaging economically would force them away from authoritarianism. So it wasn't as there, there was some argument that it wasn't it wasn't about an either or. It's that actually engaging economically would improve Chinese state behavior, which is the opposite of what we saw happen. Right. And, you know, John... Uh, building on that point, which is that what we've actually seen instead, and I'd love your take on this, is that the entanglement of the U.S.-Chinese economy has actually allowed us, instead of exporting democracy, so to speak, it seems that we've imported Chinese autocracy because of our economic entanglements into the West. Uh, that's 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 a very good point. First of all, with uh, China, when we engage with them, we thought China would be like or would become like Japan or Taiwan um, or some of the Southeast Asian states, and that is that if we interact with them, if we uh, trade and invest with them, uh, the rise of the middle class will produce a political revolution uh, which will eventually lead to some form of democracy. So that was the hope with China. Obviously, that didn't happen. It's very true to say that uh, as we traded and invested in China, um, it was, yes, we got some benefits, but it was largely for the benefit of the Chinese economy and, um, and American and global firms that could manufacture things cheaply. But what that meant was the Chinese Communist Party had a lot more resources with which to play with. They had a lot more resources with which to entrench their power. Uh, and now we're starting to see, uh, particularly in this period where Xi Jinping in China is in power, we're starting to see that China is using its resources to not just 
benefit from interactions with America and the rest of the world, but to um, export its values, um, export its authoritarian development model. And that can be quite an attractive proposition to a lot of developing countries around the world who care more about rapid economic growth than they do about political values or individual freedoms. Right. Is it even possible to decouple the two economies? So you could say that there was this debate about the WTO in 2000, but it's been 20 years, right? There are all of these firms that have placed um, their manufacturing capacities and supply chains there. And I think it was helpful that you discussed there's diversification, there's disentanglement, and there's a decoupling. So if we treat that like a spectrum, how possible is it for us to change the economic relationship moving forward? There won't be a complete decoupling from China for uh, a few reasons. One reason is that if, if you look at the Chinese manufacturing base, or even if you take uh, Wuhan, which is where the coronavirus began, mm-hmm. you know, there are 51,000 companies around the world that rely directly on supplies from Wuhan. Uh, there are more than 4 million companies around the world that have a uh, second-tier reliance on parts and components, et cetera, from Wuhan. And that's just one city in China. So what I'm trying to say is that China is now so integrated into a regional global supply chain, and in in fact is a central hub of that supply chain, that you can't decouple from China completely. But my argument in the Hudson report is that you don't have to because what you want to do is you want to make sure that uh, critical products, so for example, medical products and those sorts of things that that, uh, we need now, you have to identify critical sectors where you want to move away from China. So so that's just a really sector by sector movement away from China. Um, But you also want to decouple or move away from China in sectors that are going to be of increasingly high value into the future. So you don't, it doesn't really matter if China continues to make cheap televisions, but it does matter if the infrastructure for cloud technology comes from China. Um, so what you want to do is you want to work out what the high value sectors are. You want to make sure that the supply chains are not reliant on China or even based in China, if that can be helped, and move those outside the country. Um, And bear in mind as well that these high value sectors or high tech sectors are the sectors that will provide um, well-paid jobs uh, Mm -hmm. for Americans into the future. So you don't want a job that pays $25,000. You want a job that pays $150,000. And that will only happen in the high value sector. So you don't have to decouple in every area. You just have to be selective and strategic about where you want to decouple. Right. So, John, it seems to me that that the game is all about uh, definitions of what are critical and strategic sectors and also enforcement as to how exactly you go about trying to achieve that end. So, I mean, I think medical supplies is the one that we were all kind of throw up our hands and said, I cannot believe that we don't manufacture key medical supplies in the West. What are the, you know, you're talking about high value sectors there. What does that range from? Give the audience a little bit of idea of what that means. Uh, I'll just quickly make a distinction between critical sectors like medical supplies, Mm -hmm. like rare earths, for example, where China has a dominance in in supply. So on the one hand, there are critical sectors. So medical supplies because of COVID-19 has been shown up. But I distinguish that from 
high value sectors, that is sectors that will capture a lot of economic value um, and economic growth into the future. And the Chinese have actually been quite helpful for us because they have something called a Made in China 2025 blueprint, which essentially Mm -hmm. nominates a dozen or so high value sectors which they want to dominate. So these include uh, advanced electrical equipment, um, advanced information technology, advanced agriculture and farming machines, uh, new and advanced materials, uh, uh, advanced uh, energy or renewable energies, uh, robotics, automation, um, artificial intelligence, uh, to, to name a few. So those are the sectors where the economic superpower of the future has to be a leader. And those are the sorts of sectors where we have to uh, make sure that China doesn't dominate and that the United States um, is in a capacity to be a leader um, or even dominant um, in, in, in those areas. Now, in terms of how you compete, um, to, to do well in any um, future sector, you need a couple of things, or you need four things in my view. You need investment at scale, so you need, you, you need to invest a sufficient amount at scale. You need access to large and advanced markets. Uh, you need an effective system to drive innovation and competition. Uh, and you need channels to develop and acquire know-how and technology. So the Chinese have done very well in terms of investment at scale. They pour huge amounts of state money, essentially, into investing into these things. Uh, but it, the Chinese do struggle when, when it comes to advance to large and advanced markets like the United States. They struggle when it comes to having an effective domestic system for innovation and they struggle when it comes to developing and acquiring technology. Well, they certainly acquire technology, a lot of it's through intellectual property theft, but they struggle in terms of uh, developing and acquiring it uh, domestically. So that's, that's how we compete. We can control Chinese access to technology. We can control Chinese access to advanced markets, namely the United States market, which is the most important in the world. And you can control China's access to capital. That is, China needs outside capital to develop these capabilities. Uh, And those areas, uh, they are areas where the United States has enormous leverage. Uh, And I think you're starting to see the Trump administration use some of that leverage, but it has to be done in in, in a very strategic and, and systematic way. So you're looking at this from an Australian perspective, so I don't want to sort of force you into American domestic politics too much, but how should we Americans think about the role of the federal government and the state when it comes to these sort of issues, right? Because Made in China 2025 is the Chinese state plan to promote industrial policy. It's not market driven. It's very, you know, statist, obviously. Um, There's a lot of debate in the US about how we should respond to that plan, because some would argue that it's not the government's role to pick winners and losers, because when you pick industries to focus on, and you put funding into various programs, there's likely going to be a situation where that's going to move the needle in ways that would have been different if market forces themselves operated. So how, and maybe this would be helpful about the Australian context too, how should we be thinking about that dynamic, especially if you're looking at this issue from the right? 
we're having exactly the same debates in Australia that you guys are in the United States, which is, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head, which is what is the role for government in, in, in all this? Mm-hmm. And I would po- pose the question this way. How did, and this is relevant to Australia as well, how did the United States become the global leader in technology and innovation after World War II? Uh, and how did it hold that position? It's a bit of a myth to say that you know, the United States government had no role in that. In fact, the United States government had a very large role in that. From World War II onwards, a lot of the investments made by governments into various technologies, initially uh, to advance the military effort, but a lot of those investments were eventually commercialised. So the point I'm making is that it's a myth to say that the government has never had a role in creating the system that the United States is today. And the same story occurred in Australia. A lot of our leading biotech companies, for example, were once state-owned enterprises um, that have become very innovative. Uh, I'm not suggesting we try to copy the Chinese model. I'll suggest a number of things, though, that one, the government has to be more involved in regulation of who gets access to technology, how technology is protected, which foreign firms and entities can buy into uh, domestic assets. And that's already happening. I know you guys, like us, have reformed your system of monitoring outside investments, particularly from China. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've done that as well. So so I think that's that's an appropriate thing. In terms of um, the, the notion of government picking winners, I mean, my free enterprise or private sector heart you know, is, is, is uncomfortable with that. But the reality is that the government has to uh, identify a few key sectors and work with existing industry to, um, to, to, to not just promote, but, but also invest in those industries. And look, there will be a lot of dud investments. That's the nature of picking winners. But um, if we want to uh, be competitive, if not dominate in these industries, you do need an active government role. I think it's more about the government ensuring that it doesn't overstep its its role, that it does provide finance and so on, but it doesn't over-regulate what private companies do to, to, to uh, achieve what they need to achieve. And so, John, I mean, to that end, are there any examples maybe in the Asian context that America or Australia or others can look to for how exactly something like this could actually happen? Um, If you look at how innovation in Japan in the 60s and 70s and 80s, for example, arose, um, the Japanese government was extremely involved in both financing, identifying, and to some extent, protecting, and I use that word carefully, protecting um, its domestic companies from from foreign competition. Now, the United States doesn't have to go as far as what, say, what the Japanese or what the South Koreans do, but they've got to have, uh, in my view, a national industrial and technological plan, right? And, and it's got to give incentives to the private sector um, to invest and excel in those areas. And the example of a sector we have now is 5G, right? China is ahead in 5G, not because it came up with the technology, but because it, in, it invested in um, the whole uh, infrastructure 
and integrated services that you need to offer a 5G service. So the United States and Europe have the technology. They just haven't actually invested in offering that service and bringing it to market in in a way the Chinese have. That's the kind of example that I think we need to do better. Yeah, I think it's a perfect example. So a dynamic your white paper points out too, especially in the technology section, is the role that our higher education system plays in these debates. Um, so there are more than 370,000 Chinese students who are currently attending U.S. colleges. You know, I'm curious if that, how that number's changed with COVID-19, obviously, but what's, I'm assuming that's back in February 2020 terms. How is this debate over technological transfer and attendance really going to sort of shape in the next few years? I I suspect uh, in the United States, in Australia, and in a lot of Western democracies, um, there will be much more scrutiny of um, courses that Chinese students enter into in, in into our countries. And the reason why that's important is is that you know these students themselves just want to do the best for themselves, and 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 that's that's fair enough. But the problem is the system that they come from. That when they return to the Chinese system the knowledge they have gained can be used or these students can be forced um, to pass on their knowledge to either state-owned enterprises or to government entities that, that wish to, uh, to, to exploit that, that knowledge. Uh, so unfortunately, given that that is the geostrategic and geoeconomic context, um, we need to treat Chinese students in sensitive areas Uh, as we do with students from Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm not saying ban all Chinese students, but there are certain courses um, that should not be open to students from China uh, because of what the state in China does uh, when those students return. I don't know anything about the Australian higher education system, but something that's interesting about the American dynamic is that international students, especially those from China, who often pay incredibly inflated tuition, even for sort of um, second or third tier state universities. Um, how is that a dynamic? So there's this incentive to accept foreign students. How does that dynamic play out? Is that an issue in Australia or is that something you all think about? It's an enormous issue because Australia, in fact, is our universities in terms of um, uh, proportion of revenue is the most dependent on Chinese students compared to any other advanced uh, democracy in the world. So <laughs> this is playing out um, um, very prominently right now in, in, in our country. What's happened is, is as has occurred in the United States, but even more so in Australia, is that uh, it's got to the point where around one in every four, one in every five dollars now comes from a Chinese student in our university wow. sector. Wow. So that's 20% of the revenues of universities. The thing is, this has only happened in the last four years. Um, So in a sense, the universities have been quite neglectful. They've allowed a uh, dependency on a growth model, which even if there were not any geostrategic tensions, isn't sustainable. Uh, So we're going through now our own process of forced decoupling, if you like, from uh, China (laughs) in in the tertiary system in a form of just fewer Chinese students um, arriving because of various economic and and health factors. Um, But I think our government is very rightly using this situation now as 
an impetus for reform of the universities because that situation is never sustainable in the first place. And final bit with you, John, here, just about the geopolitical situation. There's no way that we can, you know, the United States, we could decouple from China without working with countries like yours, with Australia, in order to secure not just strategic but economic needs in the Asia-Pacific region and really around the world. What does a what does a decoupling, an international decoupling with look like? Or I guess the ideal international decoupling look like in your view? The ideal one would be, uh, the best way I'd put it would be to create some kind of like-minded economic ecosystem. That is a ecosystem or a group of countries with similar values, similar institutions, who, who form some kind of bubble in certain economic areas. Uh, some people have described it as an economic NATO, for example. What they really mean is that the countries with similar political values and institutions, United States or those in North America, Europe, uh, Northeast Asia like Japan, South Korea, Australia, that they start developing agreements and institutions that will allow them to more easily and naturally work together and rely on each other as opposed to uh, increase their reliance on countries like uh, China. That particularly in a technological space, is would be my ideal situation. And it is sort of happening. If you look at 5G, there is gradually emerging a 5G liberal democratic ecosystem. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So last question is going to be, we actually got our first set of listener mails. We had one of our listeners ask a question and he wanted to know, and you're actually the perfect one to ask this. He wanted to know if we're skeptical of a lot of these international institutions like the WTO that sort of failed before, how do you think our broader alliance system with countries like Australia, the United Kingdom, et cetera, how do you think that system itself is going to change moving forward? Because obviously we just spoke about this in the economic sense, but there's obviously a broader opportunity for further geostrategic work together in partnership. Yeah, the, the alliance system that the United States has, uh, particularly with countries in my region, it's very different to Europe. In Europe, you have NATO, which is a collective multilateral country system. In, in, in right. uh, my, my region, Indo-Pacific, they're all bilateral agreements with the United States. So Japan, Australia, South Korea, Thailand, Philippines, they don't have agreements or alliances with each other. They only have alliances with the United States. I think what you're going to see, not necessarily formally, but certainly informally, you're going to see, and I think we should see, um, increase in cooperation between the allies of the United States in our region. So Australia and Japan, for example, is the obvious candidate, and that's happening to some degree already. Uh, you have to see South Korea and Japan put put aside the differences to to start cooperating on on both strategic and economic matters. So it's I'm not suggesting a NATO is possible in the Indo-Pacific, but you need more cooperation between those uh, individual allies of yeah, the United certainly. States. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a great conversation. We appreciate your time. All right, my pleasure, and thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys.
Hey everybody, thanks for listening. And just before we go, don't forget to mosey on over to Hudson.org. You can check out the coronavirus highlights and insights from all of the different scholars at the Hudson Institute. It's been really an essential place for us to get some of the great topics that we're able to bring you here on The Realignment. Make sure you don't miss out. Hudson.org. You can check it out there. And be sure to subscribe to The Realignment and share it with your friends. And as always, we really appreciate five-star ratings on Apple. We'll see you next week. Bye.